welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. This is a place for stories of hope and healing, recovery and redemption. Back from the Abyss is psychiatry and stories. And I'm really excited to be back here to start season two. And we're going to be trying some interesting new things, including next episode where I bring all of you listeners into my office to eavesdrop on a therapy session. I'm uh, a little nervous about this, maybe the most vulnerable thing I've tried, but I think it's going to be fun and hopefully informative. But today's episode uh, was inspired by my most recent loss. We, we put our dear old golden doodle to sleep a few months ago, and although I'd sketched out my thoughts for this episode just before he died, it was our last day with him taking him on this little walk around City Park, cooking him some special chicken and letting each of my girls say goodbye to him on FaceTime and then inviting the vet into our house to help him pass as we held him in the living room. And it it was really the grief of his death that pushed me to record this episode the next day. But then just after recording, COVID broke out and Chris and I agreed that it would be tone deaf to release this episode in the middle of a pandemic. So after a few months on hold, I'm now going to share with you some thoughts on loss and living and goodbye, Dooley, you rascally dog. We really miss you a lot. When I go to my patient's memorials, I sit alone in the back. I'm sitting in the back of an auditorium and people are streaming in, filling most all the seats. And I'm thinking how he said that day in my office, the day he died, that he was alone in the world, alone, except for his mom, that he was alone and he couldn't do this life any longer. And yet people are filing in They're filling almost all the seats, and they're crying. They're sobbing. They're holding each other. And I'm reminded that depression can be fully and utterly delusional, that people literally cannot see the world for what it is. They can't see or feel who loves them, who cares for them. The aloneness is the thing. It's the only thing. And it's just heartbreaking. Because now I listen to the people starting to speak at the microphone to tell their stories of him, how much they loved him, how much joy and laughter and meaning he brought to their lives. And still they keep lining up on the stage, waiting to tell their stories of him. And I want to go up there to say how his death broke my heart. It almost broke me completely. But I I have to stay in the back alone because, because what would I say that I saw him the day he died, that I thought about hospitalizing him, that I didn't think he would actually kill himself, that I thought maybe I could predict the future and look into my psychiatric crystal ball and know what to do. I want to go up there to the microphone and say, I loved him that I missed him, that I so wished I could have prevented this. But I stay in the back 
alone, my heart broken. And now it's over, and it's time for everyone to gather outside and connect and share stories and hold each other. But there's this sticky problem of confidentiality. I'm thinking it must continue even after a patient's death, so I shouldn't talk to anyone. Because they might ask me, well, how did you know him? And and my tears would reveal that I was close to him, but what do I do? Lie and say, oh, we were quote-unquote friends? So I just slip out the back quickly, say nothing, talk to no one, and wipe away tears as I walk quickly away down the sidewalk. When I go to my patients' memorials, I sit in the back alone and I carefully observe the cavernous room, the tired 1980s-style decor, and I see mostly empty seats, two parents sitting apart across the aisle, divorced, I think, and maybe three others roughly her age, looking stricken, and a few other singletons sprinkled across the mostly empty chairs. And the video montage plays of possibly, maybe, happier days long ago, and even the officiant seems to know very little about her. There's no open mic here for loved ones. And as I leave, I see one of my current patients, and she approaches me with a warm smile, and she says, I'm so glad that she was seeing you. And I don't know what to feel or say, because she's dead by gunshot. And that seems like I didn't actually help her in the ways that she needed Or could I have helped her in just the ways that she needed, at least up until the point that she died by her own hand? When I go to my patient's memorials, I sit in the back. And as I soak in the deepest grief of her family, all lined up and sitting together and supporting one another, I fully come to realize that she was a wife and a mother and a soon-to-be grandmother. And I think of her on that last day I saw her, and strangely, awfully, it was also the day she died. She seemed lighter, more peaceful, some kind of burden lifted. And as I sit alone in the back, I think, ah, she knew. She knew that was going to be the day. And that that was the reason for her lightness, for this newfound sense of peace. All the pain was just about to end for her. When I go to my patient's memorials, I stand at the edge of the huddled crowd, illuminated by candles, faces coming in and out of focus, seeing a former patient standing alone, 
also at the edge of the gathered crowd. And she looks sad and distant. Then she sees me and gives me a little pained smile. First, the daughters speak. Then the mother, angry and destroyed, and rightfully exploded into pieces. Then a few old friends reluctantly come forward. Yeah, I hadn't seen her in a while. A few years is their common refrain. But I don't know, when we used to hang out, she was the best. I want to say something. They're inviting anyone up there who wants to speak, to stand in front of candles and say something about her, anything. And I do it. I walk to the front. Words wanting to just pour out of me, but also knowing that I have to be judicious, I have to maintain confidentiality, not invite too many questions. So I say, she was a beautiful soul and brave, so brave. I asked her to do something for me and for her once to take a huge risk, and she did it. She was a beautiful soul and so brave. I thought my big ask would move her forward in her healing, but I wonder now, as I look out on this crowd in the candlelight, did I start a domino effect that led to her eventual death? Because when you're mixed up with bad people, bad things are much more likely to happen. And maybe I didn't even realize how awful it could get for her. When I leave my patients' memorials, at first I am numbed and so completely alone and hollowed out inside. But after a few minutes, I start to notice the brilliant sky and the mountains and the fact that I am alive. I see the dogs walking their owners in the parks. I think of my girls and my wife and my friends and polar bears and breakfast burritos and oak trees. Man, trees are just amazing. I can feel all of this in my chest, this rising feeling of wonder. Everything starts to come powerfully and wonderfully alive. Every time I leave a memorial, the world and everyone I love and care for come alive in full definition pedal to the metal, gratitude. The fact that we are all here that we can sing and think and argue and hug and love and run and throw frisbees and eat breakfast burritos with spicy green chili. That's just about the most amazing thing in the universe. When I leave my patients' memorials, the 7.8 Richter scale quaking that is life shakes me and moves me and says, wake up. Yeah, I guess sometimes I need the darkness to remind me of how beautiful and brilliant is the light.